everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, and I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I am Ian Rowe, also a resident fellow at AEI. And today, we're really excited to have Casey Buckles, who's in the economics department at Notre Dame. Welcome, Casey. Casey co-authored an important new study with Bill Evans and Ethan Lieber on the drug crisis and the living arrangements of children, where they examine the impact of the drug crisis that's been unfolding over the last three decades, particularly the focus on the opioid crisis, and in particular, how the drug crisis has impacted young children's living arrangements and environments. And it's great to have you on, Casey. Thank you for doing the study. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So what were some of the major findings that came out of their research? Yes. So as you say, we have looked at the drug crisis that has unfolded in the United States over the last three decades or so. You know, I think many of us are aware that this crisis has been happening, but maybe not always aware of its scale. So just to give you a couple of numbers, you know, in 2017, there were 70,000 Americans who died as a result of a drug overdose. There have been more than 700,000 since 1999. That's actually more than the total number of military deaths in the United States since the Civil War. It's just a huge problem with a huge scale. There's been a lot of work in academic circles looking at the effects of this crisis and also its causes. A lot of that work has focused on the effects on the adults who are experiencing the crisis firsthand. So we know things about how it's affected mortality rates, mortality rates in different populations, other health outcomes, employment outcomes, crime. But there's been a lot less work that's looked at the effects of the crisis on children. And if you look at the age distribution of the people that are using drugs in this crisis, the biggest age range is 25 to 54. That's a group that is very likely to be parents. And so that made us think about what is the effect of this on the children of the people who are potentially using and abusing these drugs. Now, there's been quite a lot of attention on this in the popular press. So you've seen articles perhaps that have talked about the impact on the foster care system, looking at even grandparents, but not yet a very rigorous investigation of how this crisis has caused children's living arrangements to change. So that's what we do. And in the end, we come out with some really dramatic statistics, I think. So we find that in 2015, there are about an additional 860,000 children who are living without their mother. As a result of the crisis, 954,000 living without their father. So in total, about 1.5 million children living away from at least one parent. And about a third of that is children who are living in a household where their grandparent is their household head. So when you were looking at this, I mean, I, I think you're right. There's been a lot of attention in the popular press to this idea that the opioid crisis has definitely increased the number of, or is certainly correlated with an increase in the number of kids in the foster care system, and certainly kids who are in some kind of kinship care. But there's also this sort of competing narrative that a lot of what is driving foster care in this country and kids being removed from homes is just poverty. It's just families that just don't have enough resources, and that's really what's happening here. But you have focused in on this issue of substance abuse, and I was wondering if you can you know, talk about why are we, we seem a little bit reluctant kind of to, to talk about what happens when a parent is addicted and, and why it is that a child often needs to be removed from that kind of situation. Like, what is going on kind of underneath these numbers, do you think? 
Well, I think you've hit on something really important here, which is that it's actually very difficult to try to determine whether some of these trends we're seeing, these changes in children's living arrangements, their likelihood of being in foster care, how much of that is actually due to the crisis that's been happening at the same time, and how much of it is due to other things that are happening, you know, changing income inequality, changes in public programs. So that's one of the things we really try to do in this study is to precisely estimate how much of the change in living arrangements is attributable to the drug crisis itself. And so maybe in a minute we can get into the details of how we do that. But what I can say is that in our results, we think we're pretty well able to say that it is the crisis itself. Now, that might be working through poverty. It could be that people who are using or abusing drugs are then having economic hardship as a result, and that's what's causing the separation from their kids. It could be that the crisis is causing them to be away from home because they're incarcerated or because they are in a substance abuse treatment facility. It could be that the kid is taken out by some caring family members or friends who see that this is a bad situation. So there are a lot of different pathways by which the drug use could lead to the removal from the home. But we think the numbers that we're estimating are really capturing the effect that the crisis itself is having. Can you give us an example of how you could control for that? Yes. As economists, we often use the strategy that's called natural experiments. So, you know, you could think about what we'd like to do in an unconstrained world is actually randomize, you know, drug use to parents and then see how that affects kids. No, just obviously (laughs) that's unlikely to pass ethics review boards and it would not pass my own ethical standards. So given though that we can't do that, we look for situations in the world around us where we do get some kind of variation in drug use that's induced by policies or something else that would seem to be unrelated to other changes. So that's what we think we have here. The variation that we're using comes from the fact that there were some states who long before the opioid crisis was a thing, and here I mean decades before, the early part of the 1900s, some states passed these laws that made required physicians to go through a more onerous process to prescribe certain drugs, and in particular painkillers and drugs in the class that opioids fall into. So what happened was then when Purdue Pharma had OxyContin, which is really the drug that's at the center of this crisis, when they started marketing it in the early days, they put much less effort forward in marketing OxyContin in states that had these strict prescription laws because their own research suggested that it was not likely to be successful there. Physicians were going to be much less likely to want to prescribe this drug because they didn't want to go through this additional hassle in this monitoring process. So here we have a law that really had nothing to do with the crisis, but what we can show is that actually generated very big differences across these states in the intensity of the opioid crisis. And my co-authors, Bill Evans and Ethan Lieber, have previous work on this that really documents very well the impact of the prescription restrictions, but also it really helps us identify the impact of Purdue Pharma's marketing, that that really was what was driving the crisis in some of these states. Wow. And it is so important to really hone in on causality, because if you say, to Naomi's point, that all of this is just caused by poverty, then you might think the appropriate intervention is just more money to solve the problem. And that just can be more money flowing, but it doesn't address the underlying causes that you've so ably identified. Yes, Ian, you're exactly right. And so, you know, what we're able to say is that we see much higher rates of children living without their parents in these states that had these more lax prescription laws. And there's no other reason to think that would be true 
We go to great lengths in the paper to try to establish that. These prescription laws, we can almost think of them as effectively randomly assigned to these different states. But by virtue of this difference in policy, the drug crisis takes very different paths. And then we can also see that we get very different paths for children's living arrangements across those states. It's interesting that you focused on this whole question of living arrangements that is not just foster care, but children living with other relatives or grandparents or things. And I wonder if, you know, often it seems like those other living arrangements, we kind of brush off as, well, the kids are, you know, with a loving relative. And so, you know, it's it's okay. Or they don't seem as, as severe an intervention as being in the foster care system. And so I think those are often overlooked as a, an effect of the drug crisis when children just, you know, go live with grandma and grandpa instead. That's right. And that also really speaks to the effect that we're identifying here. So, you know, you might imagine that a child who's in a situation where they have a parent who's abusing drugs, that living with grandma would actually be the best outcome for that child under those conditions. But what we're estimating here is, you know, the the effect we're identifying is that the child is living with grandma because of the drug crisis. And in the alternate reality we're considering, the mother or father would not have been involved with drugs at all. And I think there's good reason to think that that would have been a better outcome. So, you know, one thing that we're able to look at in our own paper is things that relate to the resources available to the child. So we also find that children are more likely to be living in poverty or participating in public assistance programs, in our case, SNAP the food stamps program, we find kids are more likely to be participating. So that's evidence that they're actually in less desirable living circumstances as a result of this crisis. And can you speak at all about the racial makeup of the children or the the makeup of the folks who are actually engaged in, in using or abusing drugs? Yes. So the opioid crisis has disproportionately affected white Americans and poor white Americans with less than a college degree or sometimes less than a high school degree. And so we do see that in our data that most of the children that are moved into these alternative living arrangements are white children. So that makes sense given what we know about the crisis. And can you say anything about why you think this And I know your colleagues have been more focused on the opioid crisis in general, but any governing theories around why the drug crisis has been so intense for such a long period of time and why it's it's affecting these particular populations? Yes. So I can say less about why it's affecting particular populations, but I can talk, I think our research does speak to why it has been so intense and you know, it really points the finger to the marketing of OxyContin. So we're certainly not the only ones to do that. They're involved in a great number of lawsuits right now over these very issues, right? But the fact that we're finding that, you know, their differential marketing strategies across this state, these states really led to different outcomes for those states, says that it's something that was happening on the, not so much on the demand side. It wasn't that there was differences in, you know, the interest in or ability to purchase or attitudes toward drugs in these states. It really was that there were things coming through the marketing and the physician side that really contributed to high rates of abuse of this particular class of drugs. I was going to ask you also about the age of the children who are in these other homes, you know, or when they're when they're first removed to these other settings. I mean, one thing that comes up a lot in the world of foster care is, you know, you have an older child might be able to sort of fend for themselves, you know, if a parent is engaged in some kind of substance abuse or has some kind of addiction issue, you know, 
you know, a 10, 11, 12 year old, you know, might still be able to, you know, make themselves meals or get to school on time or something like that. But with very young children, you know, they're obviously not able to supervise themselves. And there's much more concern about getting those children out of the home, you know, sooner to ensure their safety. And I was wondering in terms of your statistics, whether you were able to kind of, you know, figure out or sort of exactly what what age group you think this was sort of starting at for kids. That's a really good point. I mean, there's both the question of which age is most affected by the crisis. And then there's also the question of where would we be most worried about long-term effects if you're experiencing this, you know, in the zero to five age, or if you're experiencing it later. You know, the way we do this in our paper, we're not really able to look at the exact age that the kid experienced the crisis. The way we think about it is that there's the cumulative exposure to the crisis over the child's life. So if we see a child who at age 12 is living without their mother or is living with a grandparent, we don't know exactly when that transition happened, but we know that because the crisis was particularly bad in their state and over their life, we're able to attribute that to their current living situation. So we don't exactly know when these disruptions are most likely to occur. I do think there's a much broader literature on the social sciences that suggests that these traumas that happen early tend to have worse long-term effects. So I think we'd certainly be worried about that here. So, and from a child well-being perspective, what are the most important interventions do you think that we should now be supporting for the children who are now in these different living arrangements, what is it that we can teach them so that we reduce the likelihood that they repeat the cycle? Well, that's a big question. And of course, it's the important question. We're already showing in our research that the children are living in families that have lower levels of resources after these transitions. So one immediate thing might be to think about ways to ensure that there's some substitution for those resources. For the families that end up in foster care, and I should say, you know, we haven't talked specifically about foster care. We're able to look at that a bit in our paper. That's where a lot of the popular press attention has been, and rightly so. But we're finding that, you know, whatever is happening with children being moved into foster care, that that is dwarfed by children moving into these other more informal types of living arrangements. And primarily single parent situations. Exactly. So they're living without a parent or the child is moving into these multi-generational arrangements. That's right. So we think about within the foster care system, you know, another big change that's happened there recently is that they're relying more on kinship care. So you're not placed with a person that you previously had no relationship with. You are living with a relative, likely a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, right? And I think the foster care system over the last many years has really been trying to think about what level of support do we need to provide for that type of care. And it's a little bit tricky, right? Because we know there are intergenerational cycles in poverty and behaviors. And so we have to think about whether living with the grandmother, who is the mother to the parent who has abused or neglected the child, Under which circumstances is that a good arrangement? How can we provide supports in those situations to make sure that we get the best possible outcome for the child? And then you asked specifically about the transmission of the abuse. So I think something we would certainly be worried about is that these children themselves would go on to be caught up in the drug crisis. You know, that's not something we're able to look at in our study, but it's certainly a concern. And to me, that just speaks to the need for broader policies to try to take this crisis head on. 
to think about ways that we can make sure that when people are prescribed these drugs, that they are using them appropriately and that the underlying conditions that make them likely to use drugs are being addressed. All right. Well, those are all the questions we have today. We are so thrilled that, Casey, you have joined us and you can get episodes of Are You Kidding Me on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. So thanks again. Casey, thank you. I enjoyed this conversation. Thank you all so much. Thank you very much for this research. It's extremely important.